0: From VOA Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castillo. Welcome to Press Conference USA on the voice of America. Joining me on the program is VOA senior diplomatic correspondent, Cindy Sain. Our topic: the role of diplomacy and development in the post-9-11 world. Our guest, Mona Yakubian. She is senior advisor to the vice president of Middle East and Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace, or USIP. Her primary focus at USIP centers on conflict analysis and prevention in the Middle East, with a specific focus on Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon. Mona has been a frequent and valued analyst on these very topics for our sister program, Encounter. However, on this edition of Press Conference USA, we would like to explore the ideas in a recent paper she wrote entitled, 20 Years After 9-11, it's time to prioritize diplomacy and development. According to USIP's website, in 2019, Mona Yakubian served as executive director of the congressionally appointed Syria Study Group, which USIP was mandated to facilitate. Prior to joining USIP, Mona served as deputy assistant administrator in the Middle East Bureau at USAID from 2014 to 2017. She has also served as special advisor at the Washington think tank, the Stimson Center, where she focused on the Arab Spring uprisings with an emphasis on Syria. Given U.S. President Joe Biden's recent address to the U.N. General Assembly, in which he said, quote, U.S. military power must be our tool of last resort, not our first, unquote. Thereby underscoring his intention to engage in relentless diplomacy, it is all the more propitious that we drill down into what that means with our guest Monia Kubian, who joins us via Microsoft Teams. Mona, welcome back to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And Cindy, Sane, it's always a delight to have you on the show.
1: My pleasure.
0: Well, Mona, you know, in your excellent paper, 20 years after 9/11, it's time to prioritize diplomacy and development. You underscored the shortcomings of the mostly U.S. military response to the horrific 9-11 attacks in the 20 years since. And, of course, ironically and even tragically, just as the U.S. ended military intervention in Afghanistan, the Taliban who harbored al-Qaeda, which attacked us on 9-11, are back in power. And, of course, you advocate a whole-of-government approach to transnational threats that entails upgrading our diplomacy, peace-building, and development tools. I wonder if you could give us more specifics about your vision of what needs to happen now.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Carol. I mean, I think the jump-off point for all of this is an acknowledgement that we are in an unprecedented time with respect to the complexity of the threats we face. President Biden, in his speech to the UN General Assembly, opens by noting that we are in the midst of a global pandemic. And that's sort of the jump off point for my piece as well, that when we look at 9-11, when we think about 9-11, of course, hindsight is always the most uh, illuminating for us. I think 9-11 really heralded this new era of complex, unconventional challenges that are dynamic, evolving, transnational, unpredictable, and that given that complexity and given the interdependence of the world that we live in today, that it's essential that we address these challenges using all elements of U.S. power, not just military force, which really i think in many ways characterized the last 20 years and certainly our response to 9/11 and the launching of these so-called you know forever wars
0: and one more question about president biden's address to the united nations you know coming off what many consider was a botched withdrawal from afghanistan and having created a bit of a spat and that's being charitable with france over the so-called AUKUS deal between britain The United States and Australia over nuclear submarines. How optimistic are you that he can and is willing to go in this direction with respect to diplomacy and development? You know, he talks the talk, but what about, you know, walking the walk?
1: First, I would like to underscore just how important President. Biden's speech was. He sounded uh, many of the themes that certainly I raised, obviously, with the benefit of his staff and deep, deep thinking, I'm sure that's gone on. There are certain phrases, and you've noted them, they certainly stuck out to me as well, the notion of relentless diplomacy and military strength as the tool of last resort, not first. He talks a lot about the complexity of the challenges we face. He underscores the interdependence of the world that we live in. He pledges to double down on diplomacy. So, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. But as you point out, and I think this is something that the foreign policy community has struggled with and is going to continue to struggle with, and that is, it's one thing to talk about the need to lead with diplomacy, peace-building, development, and it's another entirely to actually implement that approach. As they say, the devil is in the details. In my piece, I talk about the fact that we have so much work ahead of us in terms of first properly aligning these you know, diplomacy and development with defense, properly resourcing it. And I would think in some ways the most challenging aspect of it is developing new and innovative tools to meet these 21st century challenges. We have a long, long way to go. We don't yet have those tools. I would argue we're still very much postured, honestly, for 20th century challenges. We have yet to fully upgrade our diplomatic toolkit, our development toolkit, state and USAID. They really require a great deal of upgrading and rejuvenating in order to sort of more appropriately meet these very, very complex challenges, which in my view, are only going to multiply in the years to come.
0: And with that, I'd like to turn to my colleague, Cindy Sane, who has been monitoring the State Department, saw how our previous President Trump basically neglected, even some would say, undermined diplomacy. So, Cindy, let me turn to you for a question.
2: Yes, yes, thank you. And Mona, as you mentioned that diplomacy is what President Biden is emphasizing, and and he's saying this is the new era of relentless diplomacy, but I'm wondering if it all comes back down to the budget and to money issues. And some analysts would say that you're going to keep on having these so-called forever wars as long as the US military budget is as high as it is, as you know, approaching almost $800 billion this year. Do you think there's any truth to that? And could you talk a little bit about the size of the US defense budget in proportion to the size of US foreign aid budget?
1: Yeah, that's a terrific question. And I think you're right to point to budgets and always it's important to follow the money to understand really how things are prioritized. And I do think there has clearly over the last two decades, been an imbalance for sure in how we prioritize diplomacy and development as opposed to defense. And we see it in two ways. We see a disproportionately low foreign assistance budget. And by that, I mean, if we compare what the U.S. spends on foreign assistance to other countries, the U.S. spends a far, far smaller percentage of its GDP, that's one way of looking at it, than other developed countries. So the OECD has a rating and the U.S. out of, I think, 28 developed countries ranks 22nd in terms of the percentage of GDP that's devoted to foreign aid. It's somewhere around 0.1%, whereas the U.N. standard is 0.7%. And many countries, our allies, the Scandinavian countries, the United Kingdom and others, are at that target, if not higher. The other way to look at it is that depending on how you calculate it, Foreign aid is at most 1% of the federal budget, which is astonishingly low. And I think most Americans don't realize how low the percentage is of money that we spend on foreign aid. By contrast, the defense budget is as high as, you know, I think it's as high as maybe 50% of discretionary spending. It's extraordinarily high. The U.S. spends more on its defense budget than Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, many of our European allies, Australia, all combined. So clearly there is a real disequilibrium or a real imbalance in terms of our budgetary priorities. And I think that is clearly an area that requires more attention, requires more rethinking. So if President Biden's clarion call to place greater priority on diplomacy is heated, one of the places that we're going to have to see that change, one of the ways to walk the walk, if you will, is going to be with resourcing and budgets and how much money is really devoted to diplomacy, to foreign aid, as opposed to defense.
2: Yes, that's right, Mona, and especially with President Biden wanting to spend a lot more money domestically on infrastructure and human infrastructure. But to be fair, we should point out that basically this high level of defense spending is a constant, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic administration. How do you explain that, and are you hopeful that this might change?
1: Well, how I explain that is because traditionally our concept of national security has relied on the notion of the protection and defense of American citizenry. I think what I would argue though, is that that's a 20th century view of national security that is largely viewed through the prism of the military and security. I think what we've come to understand or what we need to certainly embrace is that the nature of US national security is now shifting. It can't just be defined in military and defense terms. We have to think about climate resilience because of the issues around climate change. We have to think about health security. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. We have to understand better how to protect our critical infrastructure against things like cyber threats. And so I think part of the reason you've seen this overemphasis, if you will, on defense spending, regardless of which side of the aisle an administration sits on, I think that's much more reflective of the fact that that's a 20th century approach to national security and we really need to be shifting much more into a 21st century approach, which elevates diplomacy and development to their, in my view, their rightful place. We talk a lot about what's called a 3D strategy, where we think about the elements of US power, the chief elements of defense, diplomacy and development as being three legs of a three-legged stool And the analogy goes that if you short one or two legs or eliminate, that you will obviously have an unsteady stool. You'll have an ineffective approach to addressing national security challenges. So I think we're in the process of really trying to get that stool a bit more steadied.
0: We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America our guest is Mona Yacoubian, Senior Advisor to the Vice President of Middle East and Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace here in Washington. And I'm Carol Castiel, along with VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane. And this is a reminder that our Press Conference USA podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel, VOA. Well, here's a shout-out to a new Facebook fan from Islamabad, Pakistan, Shams Udin. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to our guest, Mona Yacoubian. And, Mona, speaking of budgets, many Americans are under the impression that we allocate much more money than this 1% of GDP to foreign affairs so we have a communication problem as well when you talk about trying to recalibrate we have to inform Americans about the vital need for this pivot so to speak and perhaps lawmakers as well I don't know that may also be an impediment What do you think?
1: On informing Americans, I couldn't agree with you more, Carol. We are, of course, understandably very much inwardly focused now as we deal with all kinds of issues inside of our country. But I do think it's incumbent on people like myself, my colleagues at the U.S. Institute of Peace, others uh, that are part of the so-called foreign policy establishment, to do much more with respect to outreach and public education. Because in this interconnected world that we live in, it's essential, I think, for Americans to understand better how these various transnational phenomenon, again, whether it's climate change or pandemics, which Americans are living every day, every day we have pretty dramatic evidence of both of those things impacting our lives. But I think much more needs to be done to sort of lay out how and why it is that our engagement in the world is important, that you know the resources that we devote to, again, foreign assistance are, as I said, at most 1% of the federal budget. I think the reason Americans aren't aware of that is because not enough has been done to really provide more with respect to public education on these issues. And again, I think this is only going to become more necessary, more incumbent on us as we go further into the 21st century and continue to contend with these challenges and others that we perhaps haven't even yet anticipated.
0: And Mona, in addition to suggesting in your paper the need for rebalancing The roles of diplomacy development and defense and of course allocating more resources to diplomacy and development pivoting away from military interventions you also talk about creating what is called an advanced research projects agency for peace building and diplomacy i think you make a parallel to a similar agency darpa in the defense department i wonder if you could talk more about that and why that's so important
1: Yeah, so DARPA, which is Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, is an incredible innovation of the U.S. government and how U.S. government, when it puts its mind to finding creative solutions to challenging problems, can really move the ball forward quite a bit. And DARPA, as it's known, has been credited with helping to create the internet and GPS. I mean, these are life-changing innovations. And so the piece sort of makes this call for, we need to devote exactly that kind of attention and resources and Priority to the fields of diplomacy and peace building because we don't have the kinds of innovative, updated tools to address both peace building conflict resolution, many of the issues around human security. If we let our imagination go, we can think about lots of ways that we can, for example, harness big data to understand better the challenges that developing countries face and how better to address them. We can think about how to harness diasporas. This is something that I've focused on quite a bit, where there are non-traditional stakeholders like diaspora communities who take a big interest in countries that might be suffering from significant challenges. And I'll just give a very specific example of Lebanon. Lebanon is going through right now what can only be described as an existential crisis. And there are many, many issues that need to be addressed. But what's interesting is that Lebanon also has one of the largest and most skilled diasporas in the world. And so the question is, how can we bring to bear the skills, the talents, even the resources of this Lebanese diaspora back into Lebanon to help the Lebanese people as they address these challenges. And you know, so one question would be, is there a way to use technology to do that? Uh, when I was at AID, I worked with a Lebanese entrepreneur who at one point was trying to develop a LinkedIn for diasporas, an online platform that would help connect diasporas to their communities of origin. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, would be interesting to devote much more time, space, resources, and quite frankly, priority and political capital. We need to have that same sense of urgency and same sense of purpose when it comes to diplomacy, peace building, and development, as we have had with defense in the prior decades.
0: Let me turn to my colleague, Cindy, for another question.
1: Yes, Mona, uh, you mentioned
2: several times, I am rightfully so, the pandemic, and President Biden told the uh, U.N. General Assembly that bombs and bullets cannot defend against COVID-19 and mentioned that it has killed more than 4.5 million people around the world. How do you think the U.S. global response has been?
1: You know initially the response was focused at home for obvious reasons but i do think that in particular with the biden administration there's been a much greater focus on the need to distribute vaccines globally through covax and other initiatives because i think there's an understanding that as long as the pandemic is raging anywhere it holds the potential of developing new variants and coming back to threaten us here at home So I think that the Biden administration has been focusing more intently on vaccine diplomacy in in shorthand and on thinking about how to ensure that vaccines are distributed to the parts of the world, countries that typically just simply don't have the resources to address the pandemic. But again, this is a longstanding challenge. We're still contending with different aspects of it here at home. And of course, the science is also continually evolving. So we're trying to learn and understand this pandemic essentially on the fly.
0: Mona, I wanted to turn to the role of women and the need for educating women around the world. We're seeing now a major potential setback in Afghanistan with the Taliban back in power, saying one thing but doing another vis-a-vis women. How important is the role of women as instruments for improving societies and therefore perhaps a very important part of our foreign policy
1: what we have understood from experience in the past and is only all the more true going forward is that women are essential women are essential for sustainable and successful efforts at peace building in countries where there's conflict women are essential agents of change Women are essential to ensuring a country's development. And so, I mean, Afghanistan is a really interesting and and poignant example where, you know, while there have been huge issues with the nation-building project in Afghanistan, issues around corruption and other things, one of the bright spots has been the ways in which the role of women has evolved so appreciably over the last two decades. I mean, if you listen to Afghans themselves reflect on their experiences over the past two decades with the U.S.-led efforts at nation-building, the role of women, the elevation of women, the education of young girls and young women is often and always pointed to as a singular and critical success. Now, what remains to be seen, of course, is what happens going forward. But I think it is an example of how transformation actually can take place when women are empowered and when women are catalyzed to become active, contributing leaders in any society as it seeks to address its own challenges.
0: Exactly. The problem is we're seeing another contradiction whereby President Biden, the Biden administration, is committed to advancing gender equality through foreign policy. But then we have the Taliban back in power by virtue of our, you know, leaving the country. So, again, these are contradictions that are very difficult to reconcile. To what extent do you think U.S. credibility has been undermined and how can we get it back?
1: Well, clearly, there's a lot of reflection and even soul searching that needs to be done on understanding all of the various ways in which the project in Afghanistan over 20 years ultimately ended in failure. So that's work to be done in terms of reflecting and seeking and better understanding lessons learned. In terms of going forward, this is gonna be an enormous challenge, which is to what extent and how can not only the U.S., but quite frankly, the international community much more broadly, how can the U.S. And the international community address the enormous development challenges that are now front and center in afghanistan already i mean there are concerns not only about the pandemic but food insecurity growing impoverishment the u.n has raised many times even in the last few weeks just how severe and significant these challenges are what remains to be seen and i think what's still very much an open question because it will be contingent in part on the the taliban its government, its behavior, is to what extent and how the international community can continue to remain engaged in Afghanistan to address these many and, frankly, growing challenges.
0: Once again, the United States left Afghanistan. Many argue that it was long past time. Many mistakes were made, and of course, there's going to be a lot of soul-searching and analysis about that and what we can learn. At the same time that apparently or, or looks like women are now in limbo and in a very bad situation, one of the goals that we had was to reverse that, and there was some success. But also, as you said in your paper, the drivers for extremism that were present 20 years ago are still present, and some have even deepened, whether in Iraq or Syria or Yemen, the Taliban victory now. How can those challenges be addressed without, again, resorting to kinetic action?
1: What the record of the past 20 years underscores is just how inappropriate kinetic action is to addressing these drivers of extremism. I mean, in the paper, I raised two examples That demonstrate just how persistent grievances that feed extremism remain, and even, as noted, deepened over the two decades from 9/11 to where we are today. One is. The Arab uprisings in 2011, which, while directed at governments in the region, not at us, were a very dramatic example of the extent to which Arab publics remained deeply disillusioned and disaffected by their governments, by poor governance by lack of jobs and opportunity, by lack of justice, by repressive regimes and far-reaching corruption. And then the second example, equally dramatic, of course, was the emergence of ISIS in 2014, which at its height, of course, occupied a third of Iraq and Syria, had 10 million people living under its control. And there too, there are many factors and lots of discussion about what contributed to the rise of ISIS. But I think without question, part of what contributed to the rise of ISIS was the persistence of repressive, in the case of Iraq, Shia government, corruption. Again, all of these grievances, poor governance that gave rise to a phenomenon like ISIS. So I think one of the big takeaways that we must have with us as we move forward is that these issues around governance and corruption— and inadequate services on one level you know they may seem rather everyday mundane things like garbage collection and so forth but on another they are essential to addressing the drivers of extremism and instability in the middle east and so it's clear that a military-led response is inappropriate to the task and these are issues that in my view have to be addressed organically and fundamentally from the region and from within, but the extent to which the U.S. plays a role, it really cannot be one that's led by our military. It needs to be one that is led by our diplomacy and by the State Department and by our development agency, USAID. That's really where the focus needs to be in terms of how to address these challenges.
0: And now we're back to your original suggestion, recommendation, that we need to develop tools, diplomatic tools. We need to revitalize our Department of State and USAID. Let me turn to my colleague, Cindy, who may have another thought on that topic.
2: Mona, I was just going to ask you, following up on your uh, last excellent point, do you think that the State Department that we have now is up to that task? Or do you think it needs overhauling?
1: I think the State Department, and I'm not the only one that said this, there's numerous studies out there that underscore that the State Department is in dire need of revitalization, of rejuvenation, of updating. It in many ways has been hollowed out. The previous administration's decision not to prioritize diplomacy, to actually try to downgrade, certainly didn't help. But I would argue This is a need that has been growing again over the last two decades. I think that there's much that can and should be done to bring in new blood into the State Department, to recruit more widely who comes in as a Foreign Service officer but also to rethink even the business of diplomacy, how we conduct diplomacy, by whom and whom we engage with. What does soft power look like in the 21st century? I would argue that there's a lot of work ahead to think through and develop new soft power tools. What does U.S. soft power 2.0 look like? I don't think we're there yet. And I think that the work must start at the State Department, but also USAID, which has undergone some reform, but I think much, much, much more work needs to be done.
0: And as we close, Mona, do you expect we'll have a semblance of bipartisan support for the need to, as you say, prioritize diplomacy and development over military solutions? We have a lot of polarization in this country. Myths such as we spend X amount on foreign policy when we spend much, much less, and that we could certainly afford to plow more resources. How do you see that going forward, given the divide between Republicans and Democrats?
1: Weirdly, I'm actually optimistic on that point. Number one, while you're absolutely correct, we are at a very polarized time in our country, in particular with respect to foreign policy. But there's real consensus, certainly among the American people, and I think even in, in a bipartisan way, that this era of large-scale military interventions is over. And I think what's really interesting is we already have seen evidence of bipartisan consensus on a way forward that actually does look at shifting the roles of diplomacy and development at taking, for example, a more preventive approach to conflict. We see that in the Global Fragility Act, which was passed in 2019, signed into law by President Trump And picked up now by the biden administration and that piece of legislation essentially underscores the need to devote far more resources to preventing conflicts before they break out and to addressing them in new and creative ways having more flexible funding and so forth so i'm actually somewhat optimistic there is a way forward of course again nothing's easy in washington but i think again we're at this critical inflection point in terms of our engagement in the world, we have closed, I think, the chapter of one era and we are now moving toward a new paradigm. And I think this is an important moment of opportunity to seize on some of these bipartisan efforts and to build on them and find a sustainable, effective uh, way forward.
0: Moni Yakubian is Senior Advisor to the Vice President of Middle East and Africa at the congressionally funded U.S. Institute of Peace. Moni Yakubian, I can't thank you enough for your time and insights and your contributions to a new paradigm for diplomacy and development. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much for your interest, and I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo.
1: And joining me on the program
0: was VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.